My guest today is Paul Robustelli. Paul is an assistant professor of chemistry at Dartmouth University. His group develops and applies computational methods to study the functional motions of biomolecules at an atomic level. His group is particularly interested in studying intrinsically disordered proteins. Paul, it's great to have you on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, great. So today again, I get right into it. I first wanted to start off with a high level, maybe a philosophical question. What are your thoughts, I guess, on the role of molecular dynamic simulations in generating scientific insights and discoveries? For me, it's, it's um, oh, I, I kind of want to give a better philosophical answer. All right, well, we'll take it for a few ones. So, so generally speaking, like the integration of, of theory and simulation into discovery is, I think there's like a couple ways it can work. So one is just, it's a, it's a continual, test of our understanding of something. So in the case of molecular dynamics, it could be our understanding of, you know, it, it's a constant test of our physical models to, to, to provide realistic descriptions of the motions of molecules um, that as we make new discoveries experimentally, as we access new timescales of motion from NMR spectroscopy or, or various other spectroscopies, NMR is my favorite, um, we're, we're constantly, you know, Molecular dynamics is is we're we're seeing if if our current understanding of things uh, as captured in our in our physical models matches experiments. So it, it's it's just this continual test of uh, of how well our current understanding is. Then you can sort of look at it as a as a tool for hypothesis generation is one other approach where you have uh, a system where you have some limited knowledge and you and you want to have a best guess of, of some molecular mechanism. Um, and so it, it can be, you know, using different models, different sampling methods, different things. It can be a way to, to come up with a, to, to sort of sample the plausible space of explanations for some experiment. Uh, and then for me, I most use it as just sort of a, an, an equal partner to experiments in classes of problems where simulation and experiment alone cannot give you the answer. So that's one of the things that draws me most to, uh, intrinsically disordered proteins is that's a, a true example of where you need this marriage of simulation and experiment. So in, in that case, it's more of a, you know, when you have things like extremely dynamic systems where what you're measuring from experiment is, is this ensemble average, these, these average quantities, uh, you need a model to interpret that data basically. And then, so the simulations can tell you what else you should measure to determine if something is real. So I think this, this uh, what, what appeals me most to this field is this area where they meet, where, where there's tasks, states of biomolecules that you can't visualize, that you understanding that you can't grasp unless you, you marry simulation and experiments. And it's the only way to come up with answers to certain questions. So getting a little deeper into uh, molecular dynamic simulations, uh, no technique is perfect. I wonder if you could kind of go over like, what are the main sources of errors in, in MD simulations? And maybe just to start off, we can ignore any computational constraints. Let's say you have all the resources you want. A sampling problem. Um, yeah, so, so, I, so having like worked on force fields for you know, uh, four or five years, I guess it's kind of like the, the inside of the sausage factory thing. Uh, or you don't want to know how the sausages are made. But so there are, and I guess at my last company, I was like a reputation of being extremely skeptical of molecular dynamic simulation. So maybe I should try to like have the, the, the upside here uh, or not come off as too negative, but um, maybe I'll start with the negative and walk it back. So I like, I don't think 
that molecular dynamic simulation for any for most classes of problems that it is like a particularly good exercise to predict things and test them later. I, I like I think for most classes of problems, like just getting a, a the latest charm or amber force field or OPLS force field out of the box, running a simulation and being like maybe that's what happens and testing it. Like the, I don't I don't think that that's a particularly effective way to 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 solve problems. I guess I would say the key challenge to being a good molecular dynamics researcher is is identifying exactly where sort of like the domain of applicability of your current model is. And there's going to be sort of a gray zone between, you know, things that are really well handled, but you don't really need simulation to address, right? Like so we can look at the wiggling of rotamers in a in a folded protein and most molecular dynamic simulations get those right. And so if you're just looking at the the the, the fluctuations and a couple of rotomer jumps around a high resolution x-ray structure, like everybody does quite a good job on that with, with most simulation models. But then the insight you get is not, you know, that, it, I mean, in cases, there are cases where it's very valuable, but like, it's not that much additional inf information than what you get from the x-ray structure. Um, and then I think for for every model, then you, you, you go to a point where it's like, well, I want to answer a new question. I want to get insight into something that the current tools don't tell me. So picking that question, right, is I think a huge part, uh, like figuring out based on all the performance you can see from, from how well simulations agree with different experimental measurements and, and different observations, um, what they're likely to be able to address. And then systematically, assessing from other cases, from other things, like building up to the new emergent property you would like to understand. Uh, and so finding like, so I guess a simple example would be, you know, if you want to understand the thermodynamics of peptide folding for beta hairpins. So, and, and you want to study something in particular, right? Like, let's say you want to study the, the role of some osmolite on affecting the, the stability as governed by salt bridges, right? So that so then you you sort of need to build up to that. So you need to take a couple fast folding hairpins and make sure your force field can fold those. And then you can try, then you need to find some experimental data where, you know, can we vary the effects of charge-charge -charge interactions or can we capture differences in effects of charge-charge interactions? So are there mutants of these things that are uh, not stable due to getting rid of certain charge interactions? And can our current models capture that? And then generally, if you're asking an interesting question uh, with the current state of models, that answer is normally you, you'll hit that wall. And then the question is, well, how do you adapt your model? How do you improve your model uh, so that you now can capture this initial, this, uh, this new phenomena? So basically to sum it up, like the, the issue is that your force fields just aren't good enough to answer certain classes of questions. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I, so I, to say that more broadly, it's that no force field is ever going to answer all questions. And so, yeah, so, so there will, every model will have different strengths and limitations. So the key is sort of I, identifying where the model can and can't take you and then how to, how to maybe push it a little further to, to answer your new question. So, so in, I, I, I just say in general, I don't think... Molecular dynamics is like a, a, an all-purpose predictive tool, but I think it should be very like domain tailored to the specific questions one wants to ask. So yeah, you've done a lot of work on, on force field development. So I kind of wanted to get into that in a little more detail. So how exactly do you go about creating a force field for you know, a particular mechanism or a class of molecules? Let's say you know someone says, 
you know, I want to run simulations for membrane proteins and maybe some specific mechanism about it. And you know, they tried the existing force fields, you know, maybe they hit that wall pretty quickly. How do you go about systematically, you know, developing a new one or optimizing an existing one for uh, this class of problems? Yeah. So when I worked at uh, DCL Research, we had, you know, you have a lot of resources to test a lot of force fields. So you can run relatively long simulations uh, pretty quickly. And so that allows you to sort of sample a, a, a number of force fields. But yeah, I mean, for me, I think you 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 need to go to the literature and find the the best well-described experimental the closest thing to what you're trying to look at. So let's say you have a membrane protein that you know switches between two states. Uh, and then you would want to take the, you know, from the literature on force fields, you'd want to find the most likely useful combo. And then you'd want to, you know, either you'd want to see if, if for one, you know, just the, the, the two states are stable. So the known experimentally characterized states, you can simulate those. And then maybe you want to do some enhanced sampling to, to see if you can switch between the states under different conditions and, and get those, uh, understand the, you know, if, if your barriers are, are reasonable, your kinetics are reasonable. Um, and then, yeah, then it's a question of the, the next part is, is I guess where the like dark art comes in where it's never like, <laughs> it's never like a blinking light goes off on your Vanderwaals parameters and you're like, Oh, just got to change those. Um, it, so it, it, you sort of need to assess where things are failing, right? Like, uh, are there are a handful of residues that have a strong conformational preference against, you know, that, that is preventing the transition we know happens experimentally. Um, is it, is water getting into a certain cavity? Uh, is, is, are you, is the membrane too sticky, not sticky enough? And, and so sort of the phenomena there can, can draw you towards a parameter set. And then I think an important phase, if you have sort of the resources to do it is once you maybe have identified some parameters, then sampling that parameter space. So being like, well, I think maybe like the van der Waals of uh, interaction between water and the membrane might be an issue. So let me like turn that knob really dramatically in a few directions and see if I'm, I'm, I'm changing that property in the simulation. And so that was a strategy that, you know, we sort of had the luxury of doing, I think increasingly with, with the speed of GPUs, it's, it's more and more people have that luxury. Um, and that's sort of, I guess, what I would, I think is a, is how I think about it. Now, another approach is to, you know, try to build from the ground up from, from more high level theory calculations and things. But I think for the like average practitioner of molecular dynamics, that's, I, I sort of see those as two separate problems. You sort of have long-term research efforts to build new models from the ground up. And then like, I, I don't know that there are going to be that many problems where it's like, you know, I, I can't see this switching between two states in a membrane protein. Uh, and the most expedient way to get that is going to be by developing a new model for polar polarizability from scratch, like, or just like throwing in. So I, so I think that's sort of uh, identifying like where your current model is failing and what parameters that model in that response range is most sensitive to, I would say. Cool. So your lab also does a lot of work with NMR. So, you know, one thing I want to get into is how do wet lab experiments inform or influence your computational work? What does that, you know, feedback look like? I know you were kind of touching this in the beginning, but if you could just get into a little more detail on that, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So I like am pretty uncomfortable simulating things without like high quality experimental data. Um, 
unless you're sort of doing it in kind of a, a closed simulation loop, you know, if you want to study the thermodynamics of solvation of certain things under a given model. But like if I have a protein with a function that, you know, I want to understand, I, I'm generally only going to like pick things that I can get data to anchor me to reality to. And then so one sort of mode is that you have some data and you want to understand it. And, and so you run your simulation to interpret that data and see if it matches the data and see if there is, you know, additional atomic level descriptions that are consistent with that data. Uh, one approach that um, was popular in the, I did my PhD in the lab of Michele van der Scolo at University of Cambridge. And, and he was uh, a, a big proponent in developing methods to, to use, actually when we were doing it, it wasn't popularized, known as the uh, maximum entropy methods, but that term was kind of popularized for these experimentally restrained simulations where you, you run many copies of a, of, a simu- of a protein, many copies of it, replicas of a simulation, and you enforce in a restraint such that the average value of your ensemble confirmations matches the average experimental value with the idea that, you know, you, if you can't find a single structure to satisfy all the experimental data, that perhaps you need a distribution of structures to uh, satisfy that data. And that is a very effective way to, uh, if your model is not accurate, does not agree with the experimental data, What's nice about those methods is you get like the minimal perturbation to your underlying model if you have some confidence in it. Um, and there's been a lot of nice work on maximum entropy methods. It's actually kind of fun being when I was, you know, I did some of this with NMR chemical shifts. Uh, we developed while I was there, you know, tools to dissolve structures from shifts and then incorporated those into these not yet referred to as maximum entropy methods. And there were a lot, there was like a lot of scuttle from reviewers and at conferences people like this is unphysical these forces are unphysical it's it's not and then like over the next four years like a couple heavyweight theoreticians like rigorously showed that this is you know that the maximum entropy methods provide like a a a theoretically consistent uh solution to this problem of finding the perturbations to the model um so it's kind of fun to be there for the (laughs) for the broader acceptance of this approach uh throughout the field. Uh, so that is that is a, an effective way. And now, uh, and so what we sort of did at DCR Research, which was pretty uh, brute force, was to sort of like I was saying, like sample the force field space to, to where we had like a set of proteins. So there's really nice database of disordered proteins, the protein ensemble database. And, and that was sort of a target for a lot of uh, the force fields I worked on. And so there you have a collection of proteins with different properties, different sequence compositions. And then you, we could, we could afford to sort of brute force change some parameters based on, you know, not enough helix here, protein too compact, hydrogen bonds too weak, uh, you know, based on an analysis of old simulations, change the parameters and then, and then test that against this set. So using this like as a training set, um, and there are sort of more elegant, mathematical ways of reweighting to do this. It's not clear that they work for problems of like of that extent of, of changes big enough for you know many disordered proteins. They're maybe better suited for more minor ones. Um, and so using like a database of experimental data as a target in your parameter space. And then there's some also some really nice new work where this is done more systematically. And and in some ways I think getting into a uh, a system specific way where you get to a point where, it, you know, at the well, a, a beautifully transferable model. Well, we would all love that. It's, it's, you know, how realistic that is. But so, if you're going to study a class of RNAs, like you might as well fit your 
force field to that class of RNAs where possible. Or, or, or that's another approach, which I think some of these uh, targeted refitting of terms using the maximum entropy approach. So the same way we were talking about biasing a simulation, you can, you can sort of do the maximum entropy perturbation to the underlying force field to get something that matches a, a, a class of simulations. And that's kind of the more uh, rigorous way of doing what we did at GSHAR Research. So Giovanni Busi's lab does a lot of really nice stuff uh, in that front. Mm -hmm. Right. So since you're like running a lot of experiments, do you think you have like a better understanding of your physical model than maybe just someone who does only simulation work? Yeah, I, I think, well, like there are plenty of people who have been studying solvation properties of phys by physical models only uh, with the same like NIST database of solvation things who understand the like the the microscopic process of solvation, you know, dramatically better than uh, anyone who studies protein dynamics by NMR uh, and simulation. But I, for me, yeah, that's been extremely valuable. So when I worked with Art Palmer at Columbia, like spin relaxation is a, is a really fascinating area of NMR and, and it's very mathematically complicated for me anyway. And I just spent a lot of time like computing these variables from different simulations and, and, and seeing how the different assumptions for how you compute them change and, and seeing uh, what exact motions each frequency of the spectral density function were and weren't sensitive to and and in some ways like I, I think that was like hugely important when I went on to start parameterizing the models to know like where to look for 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 what agreement and uh and and you know similarly like I spent a decade thinking about NMR chemical shifts and how well they, we can predict them and what dynamic properties they're they're uh responsive to and and that for me has been has hugely informed the questions that I to be, you know, like, I don't want to go after a question that I don't have a realistic probe into validating. So, so for me, that's been like quite important. That time I've spent, like, which m maybe would have seemed like tedious or not, like, uh, not scientifically the most, you know, but like really studying the relationship between these things and, you know, understanding how they're calculated and versus like, yeah, you run a trajectory, you push calculate chemical shifts on, uh, MD Traj, nice package to calculate these things. And then you say, here's my correlation coefficient, right? Like they're like that, that <laughs> there's, you know, I, I think you can more finely tailor your questions if you've thought and, and played with understanding the correspondence between the experiment and the simulation. So switching gears a bit, um, you know, you recently came back to academia after working at DE Shaw Research. Um, I wanted to ask, how would you compare science being done at an industrial research lab versus being done at a smaller uh, academic group. Yeah, it, I, I mean, DCR research is pretty idiosyncratic in how it functions. So I, I don't know that it's uh, like quite representative of, uh, of other industry environments. But a lot of my friends, you know, have come in and out of DCR and gone to other uh, computational chemistry, drug discovery companies. That's sort of a, it's a lot of interesting places in that space. Um, all right. So one thing I would say is that I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, you're in academia, you can do whatever you want. And like when you're at a company, you have, you know, you got to do what they tell you to do. And I, I think it's every situation exists sort of on a spectrum in that respect. And I think people at companies have the power to sort of steer to some extent, maybe I mean, obviously less when you have a lab, you can write a grant about whatever you want, and maybe it has no chance of being funded. You could certainly pursue that direction, right? Uh, 
and while the scope of that might be a little bit more limited in, in some industry environments, you, I think you can still sort of uh, push for the lines of inquiry that, that, uh, that you, you think will be the most valuable if you can make the case for it. Uh, so we're sort of always operating somewhere on that spectrum, right? Like in an academia, maybe you're more constrained by what could realistically be funded and what you could get students excited about working on or postdocs. And then in industry, maybe it's more like there's the element of what the managers and the, the higher ups think of, of that line. Um, but I, I think it's, it's, I mean, one thing that I value is, is just sort of having, being in touch with what the like, you know, boots on the ground industry roadblocks are in terms of, so even since, you know, since I'm back at Dartmouth, I still am talking to people at companies and, and exploring collaborations and, and thinking about like, like what are the things they want to do tomorrow, you know, like, or, or uh, and having that, like that, that's one of the things that drew me to DSAR research is I, I, I really like this interface of, you know, like, can we, use the challenges of right now to figure out like where we want to be in five years and, and sort of uh, look at it that way. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the one of the, the great excitements of, of starting a group is that like all these wacky ideas that I can, you know, start pursuing without like asking anyone for permission. And maybe if they're wacky enough, like the, there's no good preliminary data and they don't get funded, but it's still like uh, there's more freedom to, you know, spend some time thinking about it and, and talking to experts outside your field and, and uh, that thing. And then I guess another big appealing part is, right, if you, you build a group from the ground up, it's, it's you know, you can establish a, a culture and you can sort of um, involve your group members in, in building that culture. And you can, you can sort of like, I think if you're at a company, right, it's, it's hard to shift the overall culture whereas when you're building a small group um and you know you, you have some more ability to or your students and postdocs have that ability and undergrads as well so i think that's something that i'm i'm very excited about so now you know my second phd student just started a first postdoc is coming got some undergrads coming in and so like the idea of watching sort of the culture evolve and people drag it in different directions that's something that's that's uh very exciting for me so you know, you're in Dartmouth. Um, I wanted to ask, what do people underrate the most about Hanover and maybe New Hampshire more generally? So for me, right, I was in uh, Manhattan uh, for a decade um, when I was working at Columbia and then at DSHA Research. And so like, and I've, you know, always harbored dreams of leafy, idyllic college towns. And so like, it's like <laughs> nothing was underrated, right? It was like everything I always hoped for. Like, it's beautiful. The air is clean. We live on big fields. We take our son to you know run around and go hiking and and go canoeing and <laughs> and all that and so uh but yeah i i guess and then during the pandemic right like we had like one case in 100,000 people all summer and all the restaurants have all the outdoor seating and stuff so that was that was a, a local boost in terms of like well my friends were locked in their two bedroom apartments with their two kids uh <laughs> during during the pandemic um yeah i mean hanover is beautiful it's a uh, and I, I don't know I, if as many undergrads are really like after the outdoor culture, maybe as much. I, I feel like there's like kind of a small group um, who come to university or college, like really focused on on exploring those things. But I think for like the graduate postdoctoral level, like I also, you know, when, when your budget might be a little tighter, the fact that like the really fun stuff is free and outdoors, it like uh, 
is great. But yeah, so Hanover is just, you know, like tons of mountain biking, tons of hiking, like beautiful rivers uh, for canoeing and, and kayaking. And uh, so I'd say that the outdoor part, um, I can like go for access like 20 miles of mountain bike trails, like within 10 minutes from the department. So I can like go out after I teach or, or things. And that's been uh, one of the best parts for me. And then all the ski mountains, right? Like my ski pass works with, there's like 10 really nice downhill resorts within like an hour or two hours around here. So I, I feel like the outdoor element is a big part of it for me. Cool. So last couple of questions. So one thing I would kind of wanted to ask you was to maybe get your thoughts on the future of simulation. So do you think simulating bigger systems or more complex biological processes um, at the all atom level is something we'll see in our lifetime? And is that something we can just Moore's law our way there? Or are there some more fundamental advances we need to see first before getting there? Yeah, I think that work is really exciting and an important driver of, of testing in terms of going back to that earlier part of like testing our understanding, right? Like, it's like going after these more complicated, like multi-component systems is, is uh, going to be really important in sort of pushing the methodologies in any number of ways, like physical models and uh, everything on the way up, right? Um, I, right, like have studied single chain monomeric proteins in excruciating detail for like, like comparing every piece of experimental data to like one at a time to everything. So I've sort of come from a very like, uh, and so like, I haven't, I don't know, I've never done any membrane protein stuff. Cause I'm like, well, I, I would need to study membrane parameters for five years before I could understand, like, uh, before I could trust my simulation or really understand the, the, the domain. So in terms of like, you know, so maybe I'm better suited to that, that niche of the early on, like the, the basic components building up, but I, you know, there is some awesome work being done in that space. And, uh, in, in terms of pushing things, right. We're only going to know the, what you, the limitations and the successes when, when people go after them and, and, you know, that sort of computing architecture, like, uh, that's a whole nother set of challenges that other people thrive in. Um, yeah. So the, the whole cell stuff, like I, I, it's definitely really cool. And so, yeah, I, I think it's important for, for moving the field forward. I maybe am less prone to those, like those dreams of like simulating the whole cell cycle or whatever, but like, I, I'm really glad other people are, uh, that that's what motivates them. So last question, this would be a softball. Um, how do disorder proteins change the drug discovery paradigm? Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know if you'd call that a softball. It's, it's, perhaps, a, it's perhaps an impossible uh, question, right? So the, the, the standard thing is that for most classes of, of drug discovery, what you're trying to do is like fill a super well-defined pocket in a protein. And, uh, and you know, that is also an infinitely complex challenge and, and uh, you know, that's, that's by no means simple, but it's sort of a very well defined problem. Um, or, and there are many success cases to draw from and there are, you know, there are many uh, at this point, I mean, there's going to be a huge amount of innovation. I think there's infinite room for innovation in that area. Um, but we sort of have a roadmap. And so I think for disordered proteins, um, there is no roadmap yet. And uh, there's extreme general conception that there's any point to even attempting to build a roadmap. Um, so I'm sort of like uh, 
hoping that our group and you know the the early efforts in this can contribute to to people being like wouldn't it be interesting to explore a roadmap in this area but but the you know the challenge is that you know we're not designing things for a well-defined set of interactions in a well-defined three-dimensional configuration that when you have these proteins that all of the the side chains that are going to be interacting with compounds or, or peptides or cyclic peptides you know are, are do not have stable structures and nor do they have like a handful of structures that one can visualize and think like well can we find a compound that hits three of these right it's it's a extremely high dimensional distribution so if you're considering the the conformations of a intrinsically disordered protein that might interact with a drug it's it's if you look at like some simple proxy like the distances between side chains that may simultaneously interact with this drug um, or a peptide, uh, you know, that's going to be an incredibly high dimensional space. It's it's the combination of pairs of distances and triples of distances. And so you have this like incredibly high dimensional space of configurations and and sort of even making sense of it to to visualize it or understand like even a simple question of like let's say we want to have a compound that engages these two side chains like the 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 number of confirmations that you have to consider when doing that and then where the other side chains are and all those confirmations is is uh it's just extremely high dimensional space so so getting the signal out of that and figuring out what you're supposed to target and how to do it is uh you know, that's a wide open question, the effective ways to do this. And, uh, and then, you know, we only have a few examples of compounds where really it's sort of like robust, widely trusted data of hitting these disorder targets. And, and I think even the experimental data in and of itself is more difficult to interpret. So like I, you know, stay pretty close to the NMR data where I have a pretty good understanding of, of what can cause these chemical shift perturbations. But, you know, if you have for a compound for a disorder protein and you have some ITC data and you have some SPR data and you have some fluorescence and isotropy data and they all give you a different KD and they all give you, you know, like even how to interpret that expert to, to marry all these experimental measurements is not super straightforward. Um, and then even just to how we should think about these binding events, right? Like uh, is something we spend a lot of time thinking about. Is, is it better to think about them as like a, a network of interactions that we can map out? And should we be looking for like a, a set of, how do we identify the set of interactions that we're trying to engage or that will be the most promising uh, to engage compared to like when you have a, a, a well-defined binding pocket, you know, you have a handful of side chains accessible and, and backbone moieties and that to choose from which to engage. And so, uh, so it's really just a wide open uh, problem. And, you know, the, the, it's not clear that it will ever be like routinely possible to get things with the desired specificity and affinity for, for any given disorder protein. But I, I think where we are right now is trying to get a better sense of what may be possible um, in terms of, you know, because presumably there will be some classes of disorder protein sequences that we will struggle to target in any way, even if we had perfect simulations of them and perfect experimental characterizations, that there will be some thermodynamic limit of how specific and, and tight you can make binders for these things. But so I think the job is gonna be for the time being is understanding the, the, the broad class of interactions of, of small molecules with disorder proteins and then starting to figure out, all right, what are the promising targets? What are the areas that we can go after? And there's, you know, so there, there's, uh, I think two, one drug failed clinics for castration resistant prostate cancer, but I, that was the first that I'm aware of, like uh, 
drug known to target disorder, a disorder region in the clinic. So it's, it's in now a second generation one has shown some promising data and, and, is, and is just back in the clinic in March. But so this is, you know, this is really the, the, the very beginning in terms of determining what is possible. And, and, you know, the fact that things are going into the clinic is, is, is very exciting that this isn't like a totally crazy idea um, that it is, you know, there is some hope for, for uh, going after them. So do you think there's some transferability from like just traditional drug discovery or is it like we're just starting completely from scratch? We have to, it's like a new science almost. Not a new science, but I, I think the, the, you know, so one thing you could do is if you had an excellent ensemble and people do this sort of for ensemble based drug design of folded proteins, where you enumerate the confirmations uh, among a flexible binding site. And then you take the standard folded protein design approaches where you would do docking on all those confirmations or you do free energy perturbation methods on all those confirmations. Um, and then like, you could just have a Boltzmann weighted score like that you could have, if you have Boltzmann weights of every members of your ensemble, and then you have the docking score for a compound for that ensemble, um, you could just sort of do docking in this ensemble fashion or, or uh, and that might work for some cases, but I think for there are going to be some other cases where uh, that is, you know, the number of confirmations and the accuracy with which we can enumerate the weights of those confirmations doesn't enable that. So I, I think there are things to try from the beginning. And then other things like there are other sort of free energy perturbation methods where if we can narrow down a sub ensemble of MD that we feel like is looking the most reactive with small molecules or the most binding prone, then maybe you can. Uh, bias the, the distribution of confirmations there and run some of these uh, free energy perturbation methods. But I, I think also, yeah, so that I think is still a hugely, like an open question, like what techniques can we move from that can we utilize and, and how do we have to tailor those to disordered proteins uh, from the, the existing toolbox. But in very, you know, we're building directly on that toolbox, like using the same force fields using the same sampling methods, using the same uh, kind of things, but how to, how to tailor them is, is like very much an open question. Gotcha. Okay. Thanks a lot, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Great.